and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the U.S. airdrop of food to the starving Gazans that many see as a band-aid over a gaping wound, while talks underway in Cairo could bring about as much as a six-week ceasefire, although Hamas has yet to agree. Joining us is Rashid Halidi, the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University. He's the former editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies and was president of the Middle East Studies Association and an advisor to the Palestinian delegation in the Madrid and Washington Arab-Israeli peace negotiations from October 1991 till June of 1993. His books include The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance, 1917 to 2017, Brokers of Deceit, How the U.S. Has Undermined Peace in the Middle East, and The Iron Cage, the story of the Palestinian struggle for statehood. Then we look into how plutocrats not only dominate politics, but use their power to own the truth. Joining us is Tom Burgess, an internationally best-selling author and award-winning investigative journalist and investigations correspondent for The Guardian. He has reported from more than 40 countries, covering wars in Africa and Ukraine, corruption, coups, organized crime, and the rise of kleptocracy from Moscow to Washington. His book, Kleptopia, How Dirty Money is Conquering the World, was a Sunday Times bestseller, and his previous book, The Looting Machine, about the plunder of Africa, won an Overseas Press Club of America prize. His latest book, Just Out, is Cuckoo Land, Where the Rich Own the Truth. Then finally, with USA to Ukraine stalled, We will assess the growing resolve within NATO, with Sweden now a treaty member, as France's President Macron warns that Russia must be defeated in Ukraine and that Western troops might be needed to join the fight. Joining us is Natalie Milianchuk, who is a consultant on Euro-Atlantic security and a professor of political science at Wayne State University. She has served as NATO representative to Ukraine as head of the NATO Information and Documentation Center in Kyiv, as a political officer in the Political Affairs and Security Policy Division at the Euro-Atlantic Partnership Section at NATO headquarters in Brussels, and as manager of USAID's Parliamentary Development Project at the US-Ukraine Foundation and in various other academic and policy positions. And before we begin, I would like to thank our listener donors who keep Background Briefing independent, corporate and commercial free without paywalls or constant fundraising by making tax-deductible donations to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. As we enter this fact-free and violence-prone election year, with much of the country under the cult-like spell of a deranged demagogue spewing constant lies while inciting hatred and violence, help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before our democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Rashid Halidi, who is the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University. He's the editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies and was president of the Middle East Studies Association and an advisor to the Palestinian delegation to the Madrid and Washington Arab-Israeli peace negotiations from October 1991 until June of 1993. His books include The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance, 1917 to 2017, Brokers of how the U.S. has undermined peace in the Middle East, and the Iron Cage, the story of the Palestinian struggle for statehood. Welcome to Background Briefing, Rashid Halidi. Thank you, Ian. 
Well, thanks for joining us, Rashid. And of course, we've passed a grim milestone with the Gaza Health Ministry announcing on Friday that 30,000 people have been killed, including 21,000 children and women in Gaza since the start of the conflict on October the 7th, and some 7,000 are missing and 70,450 were injured. Uh, And then on top of that, on Thursday, at least 117 people were killed and more than 760 injured uh, when a crowd of uh, desperate and hungry people um, crowded around some aid trucks and the Israeli Defense Forces opened fire on them. So uh, this has led uh, a lot of uh, international condemnation, uh, particularly the the UN head uh, condemning Thursday's incident. On Friday, France, Italy and Germany called for an independent investigation into the deaths with, uh, at the aid convoy. So uh, this agony continues. Uh, do you see any end in sight? Well, one hopes that there will be a ceasefire, but if one listens to Israeli leaders, um, there is no end in sight. They talk about continuing the war even after a ceasefire, and they talk about uh, months and months and months more. Uh, of Israeli, uh, of this Israeli offensive. Um, the U.S. government has not so far disassociated itself from uh, a- anything that Israel has done or says it's about to do. Uh, they've bleated mildly about an attack on Rafah, um, saying that it is only possible after measures have been taken to protect the million and a half people that Israel drove into Rafah um, out of other parts of the West, of the uh, Gaza Strip. Um, but I'm afraid that uh, the, the, the perspective is very, very bleak, even if there is a ceasefire, because Israel has announced that it will continue to maintain its occupation of the Gaza Strip, its military occupation, and that will mean continued fighting. And uh, the UN Security Council, there was a draft to condemn the Israeli forces for opening fire on these uh, desperate Palestinians put forth by Algeria. 14 of the council's 15 members supported the motion, but the US blocked it, which they continually do. So this war in Gaza is isolating the US further and further, is it not? Well, the United States has been isolated to some extent over its uh, quite uh, extreme support for Israel for many, many years. Uh, every time that Israel has, has launched an offensive against Gaza, the United States uh, stepped into the role of protector at the Security Council. And this, in fact, goes right back to the 1982 war and before. The United States is basically Israel's guardian uh, at the United Nations. Uh, I think the isolation is even more extreme, though. I think that you're right. Um, the degree to which the United States is unable to muster anything more than one or two of its European and white settler colony allies and a couple of South Pacific islands that are sort of dependencies of the United States in the General Assembly is evidence of the fact that it is almost totally isolated globally um, in its uh, unlimited support for what Israel does, Um, even as compared to European countries that are traditionally supportive of Israel. The United States is extreme and as a result, quite isolated. Well, we just had the the primary vote in Michigan, where 13% of the Democrats voted uncommitted, which is a protest vote against Biden. Rashid Halidi, do you think it's possible that we know that Netanyahu has no interest in ending this war, because the longer the war goes on, the longer he stays in power. The minute the war is over, he'll be booted out. 
So could it go on to the extent that by the August Democratic Convention in Chicago, could it be like, have echoes of the 1968 convention, where back then you had young Democrats demonstrating against the Vietnam War, and if this war continues in Gaza, you'll have young Democrats demonstrating against the Gaza War? Well, I think that's a possibility. I, I believe that the Biden administration is desperate to get a ceasefire that it hopes it can extend uh, beyond the 30, 40, 40, whatever number of days is are currently projected for a ceasefire, such that um, starting in March, it would go on through the summer. But obviously, as you suggest, Netanyahu has no interest in stopping this war. On the contrary, the moment the war stops, he and many other leaders of his government, his defense minister, the chief of staff of the army, the chief of military intelligence, the commander of the Southern Command, and the division commander, the Gaza division commander, will all come under investigation for their failures uh, uh, up to and, and during uh, the, the war that started on October 7th. So uh, whatever the Biden administration wants, which would certainly be uh, stopping this as much as possible because it's causing a hemorrhage in support among young people, minorities, Arab Americans and Muslim Americans for Biden. Um, it's not entirely in, American, in the control of the Biden administration, given that they are unwilling to put any real pressure on Israel, such as limiting the supplies of, of ammunition that are absolutely necessary for the day-to-day -day maintenance of this bombardment of Gaza. They have levers, which they are simply apparently unwilling to use. So whatever Biden wants, he, which is to say he would like us, this to stop because the hemorrhage and his support will only grow as the horrors in, in Gaza become more visible. Um, I don't think he's in control of this, entirely in control of the situation by his own choice. Right, but the, the bottom line seems to be that the Gaza war will help re-elect Donald Trump. And we know that Netanyahu prefers Donald Trump. I don't know how cynical this is, but that could well be the result. That's true. And I'm sure that that's not a, that's not a prospect that disturbs uh, Netanyahu one bit. I think he probably feels he can get on even better with Trump, or at least as well with Trump, as he has with, with Biden over the past three and a half years. So if there is a ceasefire, and Biden suggested the other day when he was in an ice cream shop after having taped a late night TV show, uh, said that there'd probably be a deal on Monday. And then on Thursday, when he was down on the border, he said, well, after this massacre of the hungry Palestinians by the IDF, it's less likely. But they're still talking about the 10th, which was the day that Israel said that they would move into Rafah. It's also the beginning of Ramadan. So the latest we're hearing now is if there is going to be a ceasefire, it will happen on uh, the 10th of this month. What are you hearing? Well, there are contradictory reports, as always, about the ceasefire negotiations, and there are good reasons for there to be contradictory reports. You have three different mediators involved. You have the Egyptians, the Qataris, and the United States. Um, there are no direct talks between uh, Hamas and Israel. All of it is going through these different inter intermediaries. Um, in addition, you have um, enormous, apparently enormous difficulties in contacting um, the Hamas leadership uh, in, in, inside the Gaza Strip, who are presumably in hiding because the Israelis are hot in pursuit of them, trying to assassinate them. Um, and so it is, it is a complicated situation with many moving parts, and it's not entirely clear 
um, to me uh, whether, in fact, we were going to have a ceasefire by the 10th uh, or not. Uh, and that's not just because the reports are contradictory. It's because the, the, the two sides still seem to be far apart on a number of, of the issues um, in question. So what's, at the end of the day, Netanyahu's game plan here? I mean, in the broader sense, the Israeli right has never announced its end game in terms of the Palestinians. It's as though they have this sort of fantasy that somehow they'll go away. But now you have an active war where you're literally driving people out of a strip of territory with nowhere to go. What's your understanding of, of what Netanyahu's endgame is? Well, I think Netanyahu is sort of riding two horses at the same time. On the one hand, he has a coalition government dominated by the extreme right wing of the Israeli political spectrum, Ben Gvir and Smotrich, and a, a goodly part of his own party, the Likud party, uh, have the, just these fantasies of eliminating the Palestinians or restricting them as much as possible to as tiny a part uh, of Palestine as possible, which has always been what every settler colonial regime does. You either eliminate the indigenous population or you restrict them to the smallest possible amount of land. And that's what these people want to do. And those folks want the war to continue. Uh, they have Some of them have apocalyptic visions of actually expelling the Palestinians. Others simply want to continue the grinding expansion of the settlement project in the West Bank and extend it to um, the, the Gaza Strip. And in addition, you have the desire of many people in leading positions in this government to avoid accountability for the failures of October 7th. Uh, certainly Netanyahu and his minister of defense are in that category. So on the one hand, you have pressure from within his government and from within his own personal interest, not being you know, tried and convicted for these various crimes that he's accused of uh, uh, on the part of Netanyahu. On the other hand, you have pressure coming from the, the deep state, from the intelligence community, from the military, uh, uh, from uh, uh, the, 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 I would call them the, the, the saner elements within the Israeli establishment and even within the government who say, uh, this war is a disaster. Uh, we're never going to destroy Hamas. Um, and the, the hostages uh, are being killed, are dying, being killed slowly but surely. And this has to end. Uh, and that pressure is coming not only from the opposition, but I think from within the government and from within the, the, the deep state, the military and intelligence establishment. And to that is added pressure from the United States. Um, that pressure has never reached the point where uh, actual sanctions are being threatened or suggested. So it's it's empty pressure in a certain sense. But it adds to the fact that there's a, that, that's uh, the other horse, as it were, that, that Netanyahu is riding on, the pressure... To, to bring this thing to some kind of conclusion, even if only temporary. Um, and, you know, his, 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 right, wing, his right wing horse uh, doesn't want to stop this at all. I mean, Ben Gvir came out and said, uh, this is proof what happened, this massacre in Gaza, is proof that we shouldn't be giving any humanitarian aid. We should starve these people. Because if one IDF soldier, uh, IOF, Israeli Occupation Force soldier, is harmed, then that's not worth the life of all these Palestinians. Um, so that's the kind of pressure he's, from, uh, he's under from the right. And meanwhile, he's under uh, other kinds of pressure uh, to stop it. So it's not clear where he's where he's going to go on this. Well, there's another pressure, though, isn't there, from the families of the hostages? They're on a march, exactly, from, uh, heading to Netanyahu's residence. Um, exactly, and that's getting exactly. a lot of coverage, is it not? It is. It is indeed. But um, you know, he he has a spin machine, which is which is painting and portraying these people as traitors. 
um, to this vision of, of complete victory. Uh, he has argued for complete victory and the complete elimination of Hamas, something which every sane an analyst says is impossible um, since the beginning. Um, and that's his that's his pretext for the, con the con unending continuation of this war. The hostages uh, are a problem for him and the families of the hostages are a problem for him and a problem for the two members of the opposition who joined his war cabinet, uh, generals uh, Gantz and Eisenhower. So one of the failures of the West and the United States to understand uh, what's happening in Palestine has always been that they always think of uh, the Palestinian people as sort of sheep that are um, sort of manipulated by Arafat or by Hamas, that they, they don't have their own agency. Right. And it's my understanding that the Palestinian people really are running the show in the sense that they, deep down, don't want to be strangers in their own land. And this is what's driving the Palestinian struggle, not the leaders, temporary or permanent. Well, I think you're. I think you're right. Um, that's always been what has driven Palestinian politics, and you can go back to the 20s and the 30s when uprisings from below surprised and undermined the traditional leaderships. You can uh, go to the first Intifada of 1987, which was launched by the people. The, the leadership followed, uh, and that has that has been true in different times in Palestinian history. Um, the Palestinian people have a problem today because they're very poorly led um, by two movements that each of which is the Fatah and, and Ramallah and Hamas in the Gaza Strip, which overall are not extremely popular. Now, Hamas won an election um, with 43 or 44% of the vote in back in 2006. Essentially, it was a protest vote. It was a, you know, throw the bombs out vote uh, against uh, the Fatah dominated uh, government uh, uh, of the time. Um, but if you look at polling, uh, both of these leaderships it has, has very, very dim, uh, is looked at very dimly by Palestinians in Gaza, as far as Hamas is concerned, and by Palestinians in the West Bank, uh, as far as, as the Fatah leadership is concerned. So the Palestinians, I agree with you, definitely have their own aspirations and, and, and vision and ideas. Uh, but in the current, in the current period, they, they have the misfortune of being, in my view, very poorly led. In, in many respects. Well, they're actually leaderless at the moment, aren't they? In they're the not entirely leaderless. I mean, you have you have this aged autocrat sitting in, in Ramallah, whose who's te technical term as president ended in 2010, five years mm -hmm. after he was elected. And you have a leadership in, in Gaza, which hasn't submitted itself to elections since 2006. Right, and, and living in tunnels. Exactly. Right, well... I thank you for joining us. I, I appreciate it, uh, Rashid Halili. Not at all. Good to be with you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Rashid Halili, who's the Edward Sayed Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University. He's the editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies and was president of the Middle East Studies Association and an advisor to the Palestinian delegation to the Madrid and Washington Arab-Israeli peace negotiations from October 1991 until June of 1993. His books include The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance, 1917-2017, to Brokers of Deceit, How the U.S. Has Undermined Peace in the Middle East, and The Iron Cage, The Story of the Palestinian Struggle for Statehood. We're going to take a brief station break back looking into how plutocrats not only dominate our politics, but use their power to own the truth. <laughs> 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Tom Burgess, an internationally best-selling author and award-winning investigative journalist. He's the investigations correspondent for The Guardian and has reported from more than 40 countries covering wars in Africa and Ukraine, corruption, coups, organized crime, and the rise of kleptocracy from Moscow to Washington. His book, Kleptopia, how Dirty Money is Conquering the World was a Sunday Times bestseller, and his previous book, The Looting Machine, about the plunder of Africa, won an Overseas Press Club of America prize. And his latest book just out is Cuckoo Land, Where the Rich Own the Truth. Welcome to Background Briefing, Tom Burgess. It's very nice to join you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And, of course, the richest man in the world over here in the United States, Elon Musk, bought Twitter, overpaid for it, and has made a complete bollocks of it. But nevertheless, he's trying to not so much buy or own the truth, but to become the number one troll. And I'm just wondering whether that is also afflicting the UK in the sense that Stephen Bannon, uh, Trump's advisor, who's likely to come back if Trump comes back, has an expression of flooding the end zone, which is a reference to American politics, but flooding the end zone with, uh, I can't say the word. With, uh, yeah, I was going to say, I was going to finish your sentence, but I don't know, maybe we're not allowed to, but with, with, <laughs> right. with an unpleasant uh, bodily substance. Right, exactly. So that is a tactic, and it also, Putin, and through his media technologist, also, as Peter Pomerantsov has written mm. about, nothing is real and everything is possible. So... Is that the situation in the UK as well, that it's not just a question of the powerful owning the truth, but manipulating the truth to the point where the average person loses interest in politics and therefore the mendacious people win? I think that is a phenomenon. I suppose what Cuckoo Land, my new book, is about, it's about really one story of one rich man. Um I suppose the analogy I'd make is that we sometimes talk about this destabilization of the truth, if that's how we can how we can phrase it, uh, as though it was like a wildfire, you know, just sort of um, a phenomenon occurring because of massive technological change that really no one person is particularly causing. It, it's fundamentally the product of rapid technological change that has completely destabilized our means for establishing and sharing knowledge and truth and. I suppose what I've come become interested in, and you're touching on it there with Putin's guys and and um, Bannon, is the way that this is being very deliberately harnessed. And you're talking about it in a for political purposes there, but I, but I also think that there is a grubbier, a still grubbier, a more venal use of, of these techniques that we, that we see all around the world, and and that's more related to money laundering. Originally, I think. And 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 this these these various techniques we can go into if you like, but essentially the way they work is that you make your fortune in a dubious or criminal way, and you disguise the origins of that money, 
and you use it to buy a big house or whatever it may be and and what looks like a clean asset and that's how you launder the money but it's a much bigger task to launder a whole life right to launder a, a reputation and what i've become fascinated with is this question of is it possible if you've made enough money dubiously or otherwise i guess to to decide what you want reality to be it, it effectively erase censor silence any alternatives to that reality and, and and impose that reality on the world force it to be the public record where now now that will happen with a huge range of techniques i mean putin's techniques include what seems to be effectively the murder of alexei navalny someone who was looking into his corruption and at the other end there's in other places there are there's what we call lawfare so they're the big as they're called reputation management law firms in london um working for oligarchs and other very rich clients and despots and their families essentially bullying the media into censoring itself on some of these most pressing questions of our time so i guess what i'm trying to say is that the I think that the the destabilization of the truth, while also part of a sort of terrifying technological change, is a very deliberate strategy for which people are paid an enormous amount of money and which is put at the service of those who want to use their power to create great wealth and influence and exempt themselves from the legitimate scrutiny by which free societies work. And of course, in the UK, you're afflicted by the libel laws, which are the same libel laws that existed during the American Revolution, when the American revolutionaries couldn't publish and had Tom Paine and others had to go with the underground press. And that is why, in many ways, the First Amendment is enshrined in the US Constitution. No such uh, privileges exist in the UK, right? So the the guilty can use libel laws to basically silence the truth, can't they? Absolutely. And, and and why that is particularly worrying at the moment is that we this is the time when the rise of kleptocrats, those who, who rule through corruption and for their own enrichment, whether that's in, 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 in the Kremlin, Central Asia, Eastern Europe, Latin America, West Africa, uh, they and their allies, and they have very strong allies, Trump included, in the Western world, in the big democracies. That is the most important story of our time, how those kleptocrats are, writing, are forming um, alliances and and um, and capturing the institutions of state all, all around the world. And yet that is the very story, not coincidentally, that is hardest to cover because of often the use of the UK libel laws, which are used to try to intimidate people the world over. Generally, the US press is very good at standing up to them because, as you say, of the glorious First Amendment. But I have personal experience of this. When my last book, Kleptopia, came out, I was sued by a holding company that was part of a mining empire belonging to three ex-Soviet oligarchs. And I had written about how the... Um, some of the potential witnesses in a criminal corruption investigation into this this mining empire uh, kept turning up dead in suspicious circumstances, and I've been very clear that we didn't know the the circumstances of these deaths beyond their being beyond their, their being suspicious. But it's clearly a matter of great public interest if several potential witnesses in one major criminal case 
are dying is something we need to bring attention to. And yes, the, the holding company, the London holding company, you know, this mining empire called ENRC, um, through a law firm called Taylor Wessing, one of the big London law firms, they they brought a lawsuit against me personally and the publisher and my former newspaper, the Financial Times. I also discovered that I had been watched. I'd been under surveillance when I met a contact in in, in London um, related to this matter, and and we felt the full force of it. You know, they 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 come for you personally. So the way the libel laws are set up is that. The, the the typical technique is to attack the character of the journalist or author. So to try to depict them as malicious, incompetent, unprofessional, biased, um, because that's how you win a libel case, by showing that um, there can be no public interest in this publication because it's been for, a, for an improper, undue, malicious purpose. And so if you want to go and look on PACER, you know, the, the US legal registry, you will still find uh, filings made by by ENRC's lawyers, that was Taylor Wessing in the UK and Boyce Schiller in the US, in which I'm insinuated to be corrupt. So there, there there's a question of, well, we, we need to proceed with this action to find out which of our clients' enemies was paying Burgess off, clearly a, a corrupt character. And that's, that's a statement made without any evidence, obviously, because it's complete fabrication, but that's a statement made in open court. That'll be on the record forever. And then we ended up finally going to court in London, and even though you know that the claim is completely ludicrous, and in this case, it's utterly ridiculous. The, the, the claim was that I had written that a holding company had gone around murdering people. A holding company is a piece of paper. Difficult to commit a murder if you're a piece of paper, my eight-year-old daughter could tell you. Um, even though you know the claim is ridiculous, the, the, the terrifying potential costs involved, hundreds of thousands of pounds into the millions, the possibility that you might somehow be outfoxed, the judge might misread the situation, the, the sheer wealth available to the other side might allow them to concoct something that will stick. That is that, that, that is absolutely terrifying and it's all consuming. And it happens not, I mean, you know, that's my case, but Catherine Belton, you know, arguably the best journalist in the UK on Putin in the run up to the war in Ukraine, his invasion of Ukraine, was taken off the pitch by various Russian oligarchs suing over her brilliant book, Putin's People. This is, And we're the lucky ones who were backed by publishers with great resources. The real problem is all the all the hundreds of other cases we never hear about, which are removing really important information from the public record because those publishers can't afford to fight. And therefore, we are not hearing about vital information in this moment because of the power of lawfare. Well, I know this only too well. My younger brother, Chris Masters, broke a big story in Australia about the winner of the Victoria Cross in Afghanistan, a war hero, turned out to be a war criminal. And the Murdoch massive Press... Massive story, yeah, massive story. The Murdoch Press went after him along with a right-wing media oligarch and he was about to lose everything, his home, his everything. And fortunately, the judge ruled for him in, in favour of the truth. They had the most solid case. However, the emotional trial he went through was hideous, you know, in the way that you went through the same thing. So that's what they do. Well, yes. I mean, you know, I should just briefly declare a uh, curious interest here is that Rupert Murdoch is the owner of Collins, which which through its the magnificent publisher of its imprint, William Collins, Arabella Pike, who published me and Catherine Belton, 
has been exemplary in standing up to these lawsuits. But 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 I, t- I take your point about um, absolutely about what happened to your brother. Right. So, but it's made it difficult, hasn't it, for reporters in the UK, for example, to investigate Putin's role in financing Brexit through Aaron Banks, who there was an FSB hooker in the Emirates who got booted out of the Emirates and ended up in the UK, hooked up with Aaron Banks, and he was the biggest donor to Brexit, and £9 million allegedly was funneled from the Russians uh, into that campaign. I think, we're still, I think we're still in the realms of not understanding that story fully, but I right. would say that the, 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 there are big questions about the, the origins of some of the Brexit funding, absolutely. Sure. But turning to your book, though, because obviously this is at the heart of what we're talking about, cuckoo land, where the rich own the truth. You have a, a new term, which I think is right on the money, access capitalism, and you profile this guy, Mohammed Amersi, who was funding, and I, and I mentioned earlier, you've got d- double jeopardy in the UK, you've got both plutocracy and aristocracy, and he seemed to bridge those two by ingratiating himself with none other than uh, the current king and his wife via a sort of fixer, Elliot, who I think is the, what is he, his Camilla? Ben Elliot is the nephew of the nephew. Queen. Yeah. Nephew Camilla. of the Queen. Well, that's that's a pretty good connection, right? So tell us about that's this. <laughs> in, in, in a country still obsessed with, uh, with, with, with social hierarchy, that's a pretty good connection. Yeah. Right. So tell us about the, what, ultimately it was about 750,000 pounds that he ended up, Mercy ended up funneling to the Tories. It is an ex- extraordinary story. I mean, what happened was that when I was in the thick of being sued by those those oligarchs, well, the, the holding company that belonged to some oligarchs over my last book, I heard about another case that was going on secretly where a rich donor to the Conservative Party whose donations had got him access to the, to the very height of society and government in the UK was taking legal action against a former MP who had raised questions about where his money came from. And I took a great interest in this and why there should be such an aggressive response. And you'll forgive me if I'm choosing my words carefully, but clearly the person I'm writing about is highly litigious and that I would strongly recommend that the best way to understand this story is to read the book itself. But what happened was that I went on a long journey to many countries, Scandinavia, Kathmandu. I wasn't able to go into Russia because by then the, the invasion had started. I've, I've been before, but but I, but I did manage to dig back into some of the history of this story as it relates to Putin's days in St. Petersburg in the 90s. And also closer to home, as you mentioned, the, the connection to the royal family and to the ruling party, the Conservatives. And the result is, I think, quite a breathtaking story of how reality, how fragile reality really is in the face of the the, the force of money. And, and, and the endless contest that takes place off the screen, off the page, to, to over over what truth will be told. And I suppose what's most terrifying in a way is the amount of power the powerful have over the truth. We would like to think, I think, that, that 
free inquiry, free speech, that the, the scientific principles are things that those of us who are lucky enough to live in free societies hold most dear. And yet what I found was, and I've experienced this you know, myself working in journalism for a long time now, is that the truth increasingly is at the mercy of the powerful. Well, there is a bright side in as much as some people are fighting for the truth, including the, the Tory MP who a mercy went after with a vengeance. And uh, well, 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 Ian, but, but, but that's, you, you, you say it yourself, went after with a vengeance. I mean, so Mohammed Mercy would say that he was completely within his rights to use the legal system and that um, he accused the Tory MP Charlotte Leslie of defaming him. And his case has now been thrown out. But for three years, this consumed Charlotte Leslie's life, right? She was being taken to the High Court multiple times on under different laws. The potential financial losses were astronomical. The cycle I know this because I can speak to this myself and been through it, that the, the the sort of psychological burden is that if you are somehow outmaneuvered, you could end up in a situation of sort of public disgrace where you are found to be, you know, a wrong and a bad person. And that 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 for, for for each of us, I think that is a unless unless we are you know supremely enlightened, I think that is a sort of fundamental fear, and it's 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 a weapon that can be used very very powerfully. That the threat of disgrace has always has always always been one of the one of the worst punishments, isn't it, in, in human societies of, of, of being disgraced, disfigured, shown to be wrong or bad or sinful in, in, in the public gaze. And I think that is, as well as the, the, the terrifying kind of professional and financial consequences of these, these lawsuits, I think that psychological element is really powerful. And, it, and, it, and in a same, in, it's the same psychological game that's played in different ways in autocracies, I mean, what we see again and again, just more generally, is people make fortunes um, in authoritarian states, Kazakhstan or wherever it may be, parts of the Gulf, let's say, and there's lots of them. And then they then they transfer that wealth to the big democracies, which offer a, a sort of legitimizing service. But the techniques of the, of the autocracies, the techniques of where these fortunes are made, the, the total control on the truth, the agile propaganda, the use of raw fear, and the tech and the many techniques of fear um, to to dissuade um, anyone from challenging the, the narrative of the powerful. These techniques have have arrived energetically in the Western democracies, along with all this money that's flowed in from the autocracies. Well, I was going to mention there just in closing that David Davis, a veteran conservative MP, used the House of Commons, where he's immunised, to call, quote, an industry that hides evil in plain sight. There are those with exceptionally deep pockets and exceptionally questionable ethics who use our justice system to threaten, intimidate, and put the fear of God into British journalists, citizens, officials, and media organizations. What results is injustice, intimidation, suppression of free speech, the crushing of a free press, bullying, and bankruptcy. It results in protection from investigation and gives encouragement to fraudsters, crooks, and money launderers. It has turned London into a global capital of dirty money. In cases it can undermine the security of the state by allowing people to act as extensions of foreign powers. Right, Ian. Uh, if I could add one thought to that. 
the, 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 yes, that's that is from David Davis's speech in in Parliament on 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 matters we're we're talking about. Uh, the the I suppose what, another aspect that's crucial to remember is yes, yeah, some people are bullied into silence, but some people choose to sign up with the with the rich and you know the worst end with 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 the kleptocrats. It's a very attractive offer to be on on the side of the rich and powerful. And what you see in in London is whole industries of lords and knights and PRs, journalists sometimes, former journalists, massive law firms, concierge services, like the one that Ben Elliott runs, that do the bidding of this global wealthy elite, some of them rightly called kleptocrats. And until February the 24th, 2022, the whole establishment pretty much turned a blind eye to this and was making so much money they were happy to go on with this. And then Putin invaded Ukraine and then we were supposed to choose which side we were on. Are we on the side of the kleptocrats with Putin at their head or are we at the side of those trying to maintain free societies? And I'm afraid that although there has been some recognition of that in the UK, certainly there are still massive questions about which side of that we've decided to be on. Well, Tom Burgess, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Tom Burgess, who's an internationally best-selling author and an award-winning investigative journalist. He's an investigations correspondent for The Guardian and has reported from more than 40 countries covering wars in Africa and Ukraine, corruption, coups, organized crime, and the rise of kleptocracy from Moscow to Washington. His book, Kleptopia, How Dirty Money is Conquering the World, was a Sunday Times bestseller. And his previous book, The Looting Machine, about the plunder of Africa, won an Overseas Press Club of America prize. And his latest book, Just Out, is Cuckoo Land, Where the Rich Own the Truth. And he joined us from the UK. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an assessment of the growing resolve within NATO, with Sweden now a treaty member. As France's President Macron warns that Russia must be defeated in Ukraine and that Western troops might be needed to join the fight. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Natalie Melianchuk, who is a consultant on Euro-Atlantic security and a professor of political science at Wayne State University. She has served as NATO representative to Ukraine, as head of the NATO Information and Documentation Center in Kiev, as a political officer in the Political Affairs and Security Policy Division at the Euro-Atlantic Partnership Section at NATO headquarters in Brussels, and as a manager of USAID's Parliamentary Development Project at the U.S.-Ukraine Foundation and in various other academic and policy positions. Welcome to Background Briefing, Natalie Melianchuk. Thank you very much, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, and I'm interested in getting your take on what appears to be a growing resolve within NATO given that the USA to Ukraine is stalled. You've got Sweden just joining NATO now. But recently, France's President Macron warned that Russia must be defeated in Ukraine 
and that Western troops might be needed to join the fight in Ukraine. And, of course, that has provoked an outrage from Putin, who addressed uh, on state TV saying threatening nuclear war. So let's start with Macron. What is he up to? Well, first of all, you're absolutely right in linking the two phenomena together. The stalled U.S. security assistance package in the House is what precipitated Macron's statements. And he's not alone. Macron last week said he suggested that perhaps NATO troop deployments to Ukraine might be a helpful addition uh, to supporting Ukraine in its fight for survival against Russia's invasion. And while it kicked up a huge dust storm because it was understood as he suggesting NATO troops coming in, that would be 32 countries now moving into Ukraine, um, the alliance members by and large came out against that idea. However, there is a very real dialogue that has been going on and now has been accentuated by Macron's statement, which is, is there more that members of NATO as bilateral nations could do to support Ukraine? There is a small group of nations, including Canada, Lithuania, possibly France, other Baltic countries, that are indeed considering perhaps bringing in non-combat troops into Ukraine, not at all as a NATO operation, but rather as bilateral efforts to support Ukraine. These troops, again, would not be combat, would not be stationed in areas of combat, and would be there simply for training, which is what was happening before the all-out Russian invasion in 2022. So there were Western troops that have been training with and alongside Ukrainian troops since 1994. Ukraine has been trying to get into NATO since the early 90s. Part of that is to become NATO compatible, raising the military to NATO standards. So in light of that and moving towards eventual NATO membership, Ukraine has been training with NATO troops for decades, at this point for three decades. So it's not that much off the charts to consider this. But of course, we saw after uh, France has spoken through Macron, we saw Putin come out right away with what has become his repeat mantra since the all-out invasion. If you do X, you will start a nuclear war and we will start it. He brought that out again, not a surprise, threatening that if there are NATO troops in Ukraine, we will start a nuclear war. He then made an additional comment, if we bring in more weapons in Ukraine, we will start a nuclear war. This is the threat he used to hold the United States from sending long-range weapons, sending air support, sending air defenses to Ukraine at the start of the February 22 invasion. And it worked. It worked. Putin got exactly what he wanted. His threats resonated throughout Europe, throughout the United States. And it was actually Europe that called his bluff nearly a year into the war. They understood what he was saying and doing and how much of it was disinformation, propaganda, and a scare tactic so that Western Democratic allies wouldn't support European Democratic Ukraine in its fight for survival. Well, the Russians have published a meeting of the German, heads of the German army discussing aid to Ukraine and deploying into Ukraine the Taurus missile. 
where they were discussing apparently hitting the Kirsch Bridge, which links Russia to uh, Crimea, which is a really important target and one that Putin uh, feels very strongly about and one that uh, the Ukrainians have attacked on a couple of occasions. But the Russians have published this. I mean, why the German military had didn't have proper security on this conference call is, is beyond belief. But in any case, it's obvious that Putin is worried about uh, the deployment of more long-range missiles, particularly the German Taurus missile. Yes, Putin's objective has been from the start, and even before the start of the war, to take over Ukraine, whether that looks like a 100% incorporation of the entire country or um, subsuming it into a puppet regime such as what he currently has with Belarus. Um, to that end, he would like to maintain everything he possibly can. He holds on to of what in Western psychology is really difficult for us to grasp. He has almost an unrealistic maximalist position well beyond reason. And that is typical Russian negotiating culture. They come in asking for far more than is reasonable or realistic to ask. In the West, we come in having already negotiated in our own minds what is reasonable, what is plausible. We take into consideration what would be our Russian negotiating partners' thoughts, and we start from there. So we start at two very different points in negotiations. The Katich Bridge is part of Russia's illegal temporary annexation and occupation of Crimea. Crimea, under international law, is part and parcel of Ukraine. Ukraine's territorial integrity and sovereignty have been violated by Russia's invasion and occupation thereof. That bridge must go for Ukraine to restore its legal territorial integrity and sovereignty. So, of course, it's going to remain in the crosshairs of any possible Ukrainian military operations. The Taurus missiles we all saw revealed a few days ago through intercepted German phone calls um, that the Taurus missiles were being particularly considered to be deployed to Ukraine so that they could use them on a strike against the Ketch Bridge. Again, nothing too exciting compared to the fact that while Ukraine has already attacked the Kerch Bridge somewhat successfully twice, no doubt there were many other foiled operations or those that made a small impact and therefore were not picked up by the media. But um, they've caused that bridge to shut down repeatedly, sometimes for repairs, sometimes just as a preemptive security measure. The information regarding the Taurus missile strike caused the Russian occupying authorities to shut down the Kerch Bridge for a few days uh, to make sure that it wasn't about to be blown up. But while Putin speaks robustly and uses grand threats, such as the nuclear threat, um, he also understands reality. He just hopes to persuade the West that reality isn't what it is. So a lot of this is rhetoric, and one must always be able to shuffle through what are Putin's intentions versus his rhetoric. And he is, bottom line, a pragmatist and a realist, although a very brutal one who has no respect for international law. So in that sense, he becomes, for the Western mind, the Western legal mind, he becomes slightly unpredictable and irrational. But in his mind, he's quite rational, he's quite calculated, and 
when he pushes against steel or opposition, he will back off. But as an authoritarian dictator, one with imperial ambitions of territorial conquest, he will not stop unless he is stopped. So we're now learning about the peace negotiations that went on between Russia and Ukraine back in uh, April of 2022 in Istanbul. And again, it supports what you just said, that the Russian positions were absolutely maximalist. They want to control territory that would, in effect, neuter Ukraine's ability to protect itself from further invasions uh, and further military action, which is clearly what the Russians intended. And they, of course, wanted uh, the Ukrainians to essentially demilitarize uh, limiting their army to 85,000 soldiers, 342 tanks, and 519 artillery pieces. So that's the MO. So who's calling Putin's bluff, though? I mean, the U.S. has bought into Putin's scare tactics except from day one. They never sent equipment that the Ukrainians asked for. They always dithered, and they said, oh, you can't have this missile, you can't have this tank, you can't have this plane, and then eventually they would deliver him. And then meanwhile... All of this offensive weapons, the new tanks that they got, uh, uh, you know, they, they, if they had to use them back a year or two ago uh, when the Russians were on the back foot, then they would have captured Ukraine and the Donbass. But now that they've given Russia time to build up these defenses and build up its military force, uh, the situation has changed. So I, for the life of me, I don't understand why Biden, particularly when the Democrats controlled both the House and the Senate, didn't do more, but now, what? what's the situation now in terms of how does NATO come to the aid of Ukraine absent the U.S.? Because I think NATO's finally figuring out that maybe Trump's going to come back and then, you know, we're going to have to figure out how to, uh, uh, you know, work around uh, the fact that Trump's going to pull the U.S. out of NATO. Well, you're absolutely right, Ian. The... Um the most important thing that the U.S. Congress has had to learn is that appeasement for a dictator is never going to be good for freedom and democracy. Appeasement is exactly what they want. It puts their opponents in a vulnerable and weak position, one which they can easily take advantage of, because authoritarian regimes are willing to break all the rules to get what they want. We are always tied to considerations of the demos, the democratic people who put our officials into power. So at every step of the way, we need to calculate, consult, evaluate, and reevaluate. And that's indeed what we've been doing. And we've also seen national foreign and security policy pulled into the public debate ring like never before in the West. And rightfully so, of course. However, Europe, because of its political geography, is um, very much more keenly aware of the fact that European democracy is under threat because of Russia's war on Ukraine. Russia likes to freeze conflicts. They start conflicts, they move in when things start going badly for themselves and they need to regroup, rebuild their armaments, replenish their forces, they call for ceasefires. They'll sign any peace plan, as we saw with Minsk I and Minsk II, with no intention to ever negotiate further. And those peace plans become a part of their war plan 
Whereas in the West, we in good faith continue to negotiate peace plans that the other side has no intention of bringing to fruition. So that brings us to what can the United States do today? Well, Ukraine has no shortage of bravery, no shortage of human capacity to use it while the numbers of troops are dwindling. They have great capacity to use weapons very efficiently and effectively. So what Ukraine has now is simply one thing, a shortage of bullets for a general term. They need artillery badly. They need to replenish their air defense systems. The U.S. has made a lot of progress, as has the EU, and therefore NATO writ large. The U.S. and its allies have now allocated 61 F-16s to Ukraine, the first of which, along with trained Ukrainian pilots, should be hitting the skies of Ukraine as early as early June. However, the munitions and armaments required for the F-16s to be effective are also tied up in the current security assistance bill that is being held hostage by House Speaker Mike Johnson. He's not letting the bill come to the floor. Most of the $60 billion in that bill for Ukrainian military assistance stays right here in the country. Approximately $48 billion of the 60 to $61 billion never leaves the country. As a matter of fact, it's allocated directly to the Pentagon. And the Pentagon then allocates it to our U.S. defense manufacturers to boost munitions production, to restock our dwindling stockpiles. And Ukraine gets weapons and heavy machines from our stockpiles. So the U.S. wins, wins, wins. There are over 400 personnel in the United States overseeing the accountability and transparency of the use of the military aid thus far. And they have very tight reins and very clear knowledge of what's going on with these disbursements. There are no blank checks. That is just pure propaganda. And unfortunately, or I should say disinformation, that disinformation is working in America. People who don't ask the next question of what do you mean by blank check, they would find out there are no checks, there are no blank checks. We have the United States by using 2% of our security budget. We have, through Ukraine, cut Russia's military capacity by 50% in 18 months of supporting the uh, Ukrainian forces. Now, Russia has stated that the United States is its number one enemy, therefore its number one target. And people should make no mistake, the number one target is the democratic way of life, it is the United States as currently being the global power. Russia wants to change that, as do Iran, North Korea, and probably China. This is a direct attack on U.S. national security interests. It is an attack on all democracies in the world. And if Russia is not stopped in Ukraine with this $60 billion security package, it will continue moving forward. And Russia has told us as much. We, we have to listen to them, but we have to know how to understand them. Putin is going to be standing for a rubber stamp election this month, giving him yet another six-year term. Um, in autocracies, there are no real elections. So we call it a rubber stamp election. He is then bringing in 
a 400,000 person conscription program. Those troops are going to be brought to the Western Front of Russia. Currently, there are almost no troops there because Russia has never felt threatened by NATO. They know that NATO and NATO countries do not expand in large or have any interest in attacking Russia. So they've taken away all those troops over the last years. Now, suddenly, they're going to surge troops to the western border. And as Foreign Minister Landsbergis of Lithuania said, the only reason to do that is you are preparing for another further invasion. And there's no reason to think that that's going to stop in Ukraine when Putin has made clear he is also interested in Poland, he's interested in the Baltic countries, Moldova, he's also mentioned Germany, and I said this last time and it made you laugh, he has also hinted at Alaska. So nobody is really safe. Right, well, I'm afraid we've run out of time, but I thank you for joining us here today, Natalie Melnyashuk. Thank you very much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Natalie Melnyshuk, who is a consultant on Euro-Atlantic security and a professor of political science at Wayne State University. She has served as NATO representative to Ukraine and head of the NATO Information and Documentation Center in Kyiv and as a political officer in the Political Affairs and Security Policy Division of the Euro-Atlantic Partnership Section at NATO headquarters in Brussels and as manager of USAID's Parliamentary Development Project at the US-Ukraine Foundation and in various other academic and policy positions. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.